It was the summer of 1996. I was in Siedlce, Poland with 16 First Universalist teens. They were a harder group than I'd expected, and I dealt with a lot of anger from a few who would have preferred to stay at home. I dealt with a lot more complicated emotions from kids who were confused about Polish ways of doing things and those who were challenged by not being able to make themselves understood. Our kids didn't have much experience at being in a minority. I tried to help Polish cooks, who typically serve meat three meals a day, find vegetarian options for a few of our kids. I'd been off and on buses a thousand times, it seemed, and had made sure that everyone was present so many times that I was counting to 16 in my sleep. I was really tired. Finally, I'd passed what I'd expected to be the final hurdle. The kids had completed the summer camp portion of the program and would spend the final week in the home of a Polish peer. Each language group had one or two charismatic members with whom everyone wanted to be paired. A committee of Americans and Poles working uh, through an interpreter had spent hours trying to be fair to everyone. We'd work through the kids' tears and brainstormed about ways pairs could team up so that everyone could spend time with a friend. Finally, the kids were accepting of the decision and ready to go. Then I was called to the director's office. This is Pani Szymankowska, the director said. Her son is Mateusz. She's refusing to have the American child we designated in her home. Through interpretation, the mother explained that she couldn't see why she should have to take the only boy who was hated by every other American team in, in the group. I was astounded. We'd worked through a lot of problems, but First Universalist kids hating each other was not one of them. I didn't know where to begin. Eva, the bilingual member of our team, took over. The conversation began in Polish. Gradually, it was explained to me that the mom was certain that this boy was hated because the American kids were saying such horrible things about his mother. She refused to tell what had been, in, what had been said because she wouldn't use such foul language, even in a direct quote. Then I saw a light bulb go off in Eva's head. A rapid conversation in Polish ensued. I watched faces for clues. Eva asked a question. The mom gasped in horror and then seemed surprised. Eva talked in a calm voice and the mom began to cry. She spoke doubtfully and left the room still crying. I still had no clue. The horrible word I learned was lesbian. Eva had explained that many Americans don't see that as a horrible word and had disclosed that she too would be hosting the child of a lesbian mother. Mrs. Szymankowska needed time to think, but she'd invited us to dinner that night to discuss options. I too needed time to think. Should I pull the American team out of the home and keep him with me? He was a pretty vulnerable kid, in some ways too complicated to explain here. Should I trust this homophobe to treat him well? It was a difficult dinner. The plan was that the Polish kids would come to Minnesota the following summer and stay in the home of the child they'd hosted. 
Mrs. Shimonkovska was terrified that she'd be sending her son to stay with a sexual pervert, and her questions were brutally honest. They sounded hateful to my UU ears, but I hung in and answered every one of them. Every one of them. With translation, the discussion took over three hours. That night, I called the American mom, and we worked together to make sure her son would be emotionally safe. She agreed to talk to her son regularly by phone, and I checked in with the Polish mom daily. There were no incidents, either that year in Poland or the following year, when Mateusz Szymankowski was hosted in Minnesota by a lesbian couple. Three years later, I was in Eva's home in Szydlce when Mrs. Szymankowska called. She'd heard I was in town and was asking for a favor. The boys were still in email contact, and she knew the American family was planning a trip to Europe. She couldn't talk directly to the American adults and wanted me to make sure that the Americans knew that the invitation they'd received to stay in her home came from her and her husband, not just her son. Change of scene. In 2005, Spain, the most Catholic country in Europe, became the third country in the world to approve gay marriage. The Catholic Church had expressed vehement opposition, but the law passed by a large majority in the Spanish Parliament, and the public supported it by a two-to-one margin. President Rodriguez Zapatero sounded like a UU when he explained what his government had done. We are expanding the opportunities for happiness of our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends, and our relatives. At the same time, we are building a more decent society. How had such a thing happened? I thought back to Poland and to my beliefs. I believe in the inherent worth and dignity of all human beings, including Polish homophobes. More than that, <laughs> I believe in the pow power of human connection to overcome hate, and I believe in ripples. What happens in one interaction affects others, which in turn affect even more. Had my ripples reached Spain? Of course not. I'm not that simplistic. But someone else's had. Of that, I have no doubt. Well, when Charlotte asked me to name the most spiritually powerful time that I worked for Peace and Justice and share it with you today, my immediate reaction was a feeling of apprehension and inadequacy. Feeling spiritually powerful was not something I talked about or even felt much. And about peace and justice, well, I didn't feel particularly qualified or experienced in that area either, unlike my wife Betsy, who's been active for years. But I plowed ahead anyway, reflecting on what peace and justice activities most impacted me over time. I came up with a short list that included initiating socially responsible investment activities at the church in 2004. It also included some advocacy activities outside the church, but most often with you, my UU community, including the voter registration activity drive that went on in 2004, the rally promoting a civil marriage amendment in 2006 with Ted. And, but most significant of all to me 
and apparently to two-year-old Grace, who's posted her testimonial on the board downstairs, which you all are being asked to do. But it was the anti-war marches that I've been a part of, dating back to when, as a young naval officer, I protested while still in uniform against the Vietnam War, and then continuing today protesting the war in Iraq. Each time, these experiences have felt powerful and spiritually uplifting, fighting against something that's horrible, wrong-headed, and costly for something that represents an alternative voice for peace. But I also reflected on what exactly the spiritually powerful impact had been, other than a momentary lift, as when I helped carry the inflated globe in the march down Hennepin Avenue last year, along with a fellow UUs. For me, one of the spiritual impacts of social witness is feeling that I'm indeed living out my UU principles, particularly the principles in support of a goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, and the goal of justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. I also feel empowered because in doing this, I get to tell a new story about myself. As a person who lives out his convictions rather than someone who observes from the sidelines, telling a bolder story about myself has helped me be bold. It's important to add that my spiritual experience was stronger when certain elements were present. For example, when I can participate alongside others from our church community, or when I'm forced to take a personal risk, acting more boldly, or in the case of the Vietnam protest, putting my career at risk, and when I'm working towards an inspired vision such as peace. And something else is true, that the experience of spiritual empowerment has prompted me to take a more active role in the leadership of our church, indirectly supporting and strengthening our church community through my board work on initiatives like Isaiah and the Compass Group. But for all that I've gained from these peace and justice experiences, I still struggle with my tendency to resist change and sometimes avoid risk, and an occasional tendency to compare myself with the more active social justice members of our UU community. I realize that my spiritual challenge is to continue to create and live out my better, bolder stories, something that takes a daily discipline, a spiritual practice, and a willingness to ask for support. So right now I say to you that I will work for change in the world this fall, helping peace and justice candidates get elected, and I hope for your support. Maybe you can find yourself in my story, and in doing so you can also find and write your own stories. Then, together, we can live out our peace and justice stories, changing ourselves and our world one story at a time. Thanks for listening. I was at um, a conference last year for Allies for Racial Equity who were meeting in conjunction with DRUM, Diverse Revolutionary UU Ministries. And the Allies for Racial Equity hold accountability at all times to people of color in DRUM. The conversation was about cultural misappropriation, specifically musical. And one of our white 
Unitarian Universalist music directors stood up and spoke. He had come from a rather poor white background in the Mid-South in an evangelical church tradition. And people were telling him that it was inappropriate for us to be singing gospel songs because they were not ours. And he said, does that mean I'm not one of us? Massey Barnwell said the same thing. Massey was the arranger of the last two pieces that Spice sang for us. She's um, a member of Sweet Honey in the Rock. She's also um, a longtime member of All Souls Unitarian Church in Washington, D.C. She asks, does that mean that I'm not one of us? And the questions continue and the discussions are deep. But what this is all about is learning to tell our stories. Because it's in our stories that we find who we are and who we are not. It is in our stories that we make new meaning, find ways to be bolder, find ways to be faithful. This morning, there are hundreds of people attending Plymouth Congregational Church in downtown Minneapolis who are here to attend the National Gathering on Faith and Politics. The conference began on Friday with Jim Wallace's keynote. It ends this afternoon with an address by Rabbi Michael Lerner. There are dozens of workshops that people have been attending and they were advertised to be robust opportunities to share your own stories and ideas on faith, justice, and community. We're in good company today as we ask you to remember a, a spiritually powerful time when you worked for peace and justice. To remember exactly what happened and what you did. Why? The reason we do this is to know who we are. To know what it is that grounds us at times that we are being the self that we most want to be. The greatest changes in this world have never happened quickly. They have almost all happened because people of faith understood at some point in time what was most important. Barack Obama has had to deal with the controversy that has come out of comments made by his minister, speaking very harshly about racism in this society. What Barack had to say about this was 
The profound mistake of Reverend Wright's sermons is not that he spoke about racism. It's that he spoke as if our society was static, as if no progress had been made as if this country, a country that has made it possible for one of its own members to run for the highest office in the land and build a coalition of white and black, Latino and Asian, rich and poor, young and old, is still irrevocably tied to a tragic past. But what we know, what we have seen, is that America can change. That is the true genius of this nation. What we have already achieved gives us hope, the audacity to hope for what we can and must achieve tomorrow. We tell our stories not to brag, but to consciously frame or reframe our history in light of the principles that give meaning to our lives to name the threads that weave and bind, to see ourselves in new ways that we might live larger and braver and more meaningful lives because new stories create new realities. I look around this congregation and I am absolutely amazed at the people and what your faith moves you to do. Phyllis Dennerson, editor of Progressive, member of this congregation, editor of Progressive Values newsletter, wrote an article in January that was so powerful to me. It was when national media was reporting on the argument between Clinton and Obama's supporters around a remark made by Clinton about who deserves the most credit for passing the Civil Rights Act, Dr. Martin Luther King or President Johnson. And Phyllis wrote that the simple dichotomy of either or trumpeted by the media is wrong. Complex factors are at play in all major social changes. President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act into law after it was passed by the House of Representatives, after it was passed by the Senate, after Dr. Martin Luther King's awesomely inspiring I Have a Dream speech, after images of massive public demonstrations and protests involving black and white people, many of them clergy, were transported into American homes through national telephone, television. And after countless meetings of civil rights leaders in the community and after the murder of James Reeb of All Souls Unitarian Church, Washington, D.C., after many demonstrations and altercations in the South that went unnoticed by national media, after African-American churches had spent years nurturing the souls and the hopes of their congregations. And one of these churches was the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, where a young minister named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had recently succeeded his father, Martin Luther King Sr. 
Change didn't happen because of King and Johnson. It wasn't because of King or Johnson. Change happened because courageous and visionary leaders spoke out and organized. More leaders. Many of the ministers, rabbis, people of faith answered the call and helped raise public consciousness about the injustice of segregation. They never gave up. And then, hundreds of thousands of ordinary people became extraordinary by getting involved. Hearts and minds of a critical mass of Americans were transformed from fear of the children of slavery into recognition of our shared humanity and that we are all created equal. Together, they created the tipping point that changed this country forever. The tipping point. That's really what it's about, isn't it? And who knows where that is? When we think about the time, the time that was most spiritually powerful, it's not always huge. I know precisely what it is for the woman who created this necklace for me, who died two years ago at the age of 94. She told the story over and over again. Now, this is a woman who was involved in the sit-down strike in Flint, Michigan. This is a woman who marched for all kinds of causes. This is a woman who was always out there, a strong social worker. The story she always told, the thing that she was most proud of, was a story about her son and grandsons driving to church in New York City. And as they pulled off the freeway, there was a man needing a ride on the side of the road with a gas can. And they picked him up. This is New York City. That's not something you do. The man had not surprisingly been hoping for a ride for a long time and had walked down the freeway a long way already. And he said, I can't believe that you picked me up. Nobody does that in New York. And from the back seat, her six-year-old grandson said, of course we picked you up. We're Unitarian Universalists. <laughs> faith changes the world because faith changes people and people understand themselves in new ways and the world is changed. You've all got your stories and you all have opportunities to live them even further into reality. Maybe it will be joining Project Homeless Connect. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I'm going back for seconds. We had over 100 there the first time. I hope that will be true here too. Maybe, maybe it will be joining in with people at a concert with Mary Bowman this Wednesday singing 
to get us ready spiritually for Earth Day at the United Theological Seminary. Information in Cyber News. Maybe, maybe on Thursday you'll be at the at the state capitol for out front Minnesota's Just Fair Lobby Day to be trained and to speak to your legislature to to help them know that Minnesota cares about equality for gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgendered people and their families. Maybe you'll come in the morning for educational uh, sessions. Or maybe you'll just read something like the recent Pew study that tells us that one in every hundred Americans are currently in jail. One in a hundred. One in 30 men between the ages of 20 and 34 is currently behind bars in this country. One in 34. And for black males in that age group, the figure is one in nine. Maybe somewhere in there, there's a place that will grab you to move and learn and work for prison reform. Maybe it will trigger something in our concern for all votes counting when we see exactly what votes are systematically being taken out of the system. Maybe. Maybe you'll get involved in alternative energy. Whatever it is, when it's grounded in knowing why and who we are, the story has new power. Bishop Oscar Romero wrote, it's been a long, do you believe it was 28 years ago he was assassinated? It seems like yesterday. He wrote, this is what we are about. We plant seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for God's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the results, for we, we are workers, not master builders. With Barb, I believe in the inherent worth and dignity of all people, including Polish homophobes. And I believe in the power of human connection to overcome hate. I believe in ripples. I believe in the power of our stories. 
how will we ever know where those ripples and stories will reach? Let's build a land. Let's build a world. Let's build lives.